This is The Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast. The Beatles told us that all you need is love. Love is all you need. I mean, it sounds good, and those lyrics may resonate with us, connect with us. I think we would all admit that it's actually kind of difficult to live that out. Who do we love? And, 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 and how do we love them? And, and how much do we love them? And, and is there anybody that's excluded from love? This is going to be our, our second week in our story time series as we're looking at four different parables that Jesus told in the book of Luke. And today is probably the most famous parable that Jesus ever, ever told. It's used in mainstream media. It's referenced in conversations and music and TV all over the place. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 25 all the way to verse 37. And as we mentioned last week, parables are stories, but they're stories with a point. Usually one main point that Jesus is trying to illustrate. And the main point of this story today is that being a true neighbor involves showing radical love and deep concern for others. So let's start by looking at verse 25 to 29. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. That, that's key for us. Saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay, so a lawyer, and don't think like a modern lawyer, court, you know, objection, your honor, all that kind of stuff. A lawyer in this day was was a teacher, a studier of, of the law, the Old Testament scriptures. But this lawyer stands up and it says specifically to test Jesus. So we get some insight here that this guy's not necessarily sincerely wanting to grow, to change, to learn. He's trying to stump Jesus, to, to catch him uh, in, in, in a mistake. He wants to see if his answers line up with what the rest of scripture teaches. Um, perhaps he's hoping that Jesus would would stumble over his answer and that would give him the opportunity to stand up and to teach and to, you know, uh, maybe up his reputation. But he asked this question, okay, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we are still asking this question centuries later. This is probably the most important question that someone could ask. What do I got to do to get to heaven? How do I get eternal life? How do I get to be with God? How does this work? What do I got to do? We're always looking for some level of performance-based acceptance. Just give me the the list of the do's and don'ts. Tell me the parameters. Just tell me what I got to do to get heaven. And so Jesus answers him, okay, well, what does the law say? What does it say in the Bible? And so he answers, well, you got to love God. You got to love your neighbor, which is a summary of the Old Testament law. And Jesus basically says, yeah, you got it. Do this and you will live. So is Jesus advocating for a, a works-based salvation here? I mean, as Christians, we, we boldly declare that it's not about your works. It's not about how good you are. It's not about your good deeds. It's about placing your faith in Jesus that we're saved by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But then Jesus says, do this and you will live. What's going on here? Well, it, it kind of sounds like he's advocating for works-based salvation. But as you dig deeper, you find out that it's truly not actually the case. 
Because in saying, do this and you will live, he is saying to this lawyer, yeah, if you can perfectly love God, perfectly obey his commands, perfectly love your neighbor as yourself, then you are perfect and then you will inherit eternal life. But if you are, are perfect, there's no need for Jesus to come in the first place because you'd be able to sort it out and everything would be fine. But the reality is you can't be perfect. I can't be perfect. We can't be perfect. Nobody except for Jesus has ever lived on this earth perfectly. That's the point that he's trying to say. We haven't, be per we haven't been perfect and we will never be able to love God perfectly. People are not saved by their efforts or by their works we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But we are saved and we are changed by grace in order to do good works. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Super clear. Not a result of works, so no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by our works, but we are saved for works. And I think the lawyer kind of knew this in his head. He knew that he had failed. There's no, he knew that he had never obeyed perfectly, and he had never loved people perfectly. He can't live this out. So in verse 29, it says he's desiring to justify himself. He, he asks, well, 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 who's my neighbor, right? He, he, he knows he's guilty. He can't do this perfectly. So he tries to find a way out. He tries to lower the bar to try to find a little loophole so he could still say, I'm a good guy. I'm pretty good. Who is my neighbor? What's the limit of love? Is it just my immediate family members? Perhaps it's my extended family. Is it, is it actual neighbors who, who live in, in close proximity to my house? Is it, is it friends? Uh, where can I draw the line, Jesus? What are the parameters of loving other people? And so Jesus is like, okay, well, you want an answer to this question? And rather than loosening the definition of a neighbor, which is probably what this lawyer was hoping for, Jesus radically expands it, and he tells the story which blows this guy's parameters out of the water. Let's look at verse 30 to 37. And he says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound him, bound his wounds, uh, and, pouring oil and pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. So Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So we're 2,000 years removed from this parable, this story, but it still resonates in our hearts, or at least it should. 
And so this guy gets beat up on a journey and, and he's left for dead. And by chance, like he's, he's probably so thankful. A, a, a Levite and a priest walked by. Now priests, they were descendants of Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses. They served in the temple. Levites were, were part of the tribe of Levi and Israel, but not all Levites were direct descendants of Aaron. Levites assisted the priests. So it's almost like there's no two better people to, to in theory, be coming down the road. Jesus, as he's telling the story, we're meant to think, oh, surely this guy has found uh, some, some help and some hope. These religious leaders, these pious people are supposed to be examples of what it means to love God and to love others. They're definitely going to help a fellow Jew in dire need. But they pass by on the other side. They go out of their way to not help him. I have to ask myself, and we got to ask ourselves too, how often do we go out of our way to not help? How often do we go out of our way to not get involved when we know we should? So he goes on, he says, um, a Samaritan stopped and helped. A Samaritan. Now, we don't get this as much um, today, but how, how, how shocked and even scandalized people would have been hearing this. There were huge racial, national, historical issues, hatred between Jews and Samaritans. You might say, okay, why? What's going on? Well, centuries earlier, some Jews from northern Israel intermarried with the Gentiles, non-Jews, surrounding nations. So they were... They weren't pure Jews anymore. They were viewed as, as half-breeds. They were viewed even as rebels or traitors to the nation of Israel's and so, Israel. And so over time, they actually developed their own culture, and they actually built their own temple for worship. And tensions and fighting between Samaritans and Jews got so bad that during Claudius' reign in the first century, Roman soldiers were deployed to pacify the fighting, and they actually crucified people on both sides as an example to say, stop this. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They did not get along. They were basically taught to hate each other from childhood. So this relationship and the disdain that they had, it was way bigger than, you know, sometimes we think about, oh, well, I cheer for Toronto and you cheer for Montreal, so we don't like each other. No, no, no. This was utter disgust and hatred. The story, like a Samaritan stopping, it's meant to say, this is not what you ever thought would happen. And the Samaritan doesn't just stop. He totally takes care of him. He, he cleans him up. He, he puts him on his donkey, gets him to medical care, pays the man's bill. But he doesn't even know the guy. And in fact, he's supposed to hate this guy. But he goes above and beyond at great personal cost. And so, men, Mr. Lawyer there, who proved to be a neighbor? Verse 37, he says, the one who showed him mercy. He doesn't even say the Samaritan. He won't say the Samaritan, just the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, yeah, 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 that's right. Now you go and do likewise. You show mercy. See, see, this, this lawyer, he's trying to uh, put these parameters on of who I can love and who I should love and who I can't love. And, and he's asking, who is my neighbor? Where can I draw the line? But the question actually isn't, who is my neighbor? The real question is, to whom can I be a neighbor? How can I lovingly show mercy to others? And, and, and just to warn you, the answer to that question, how can I show love and mercy to others? It's going to inconvenience you and I. It's going to interrupt our day. It's going to screw up our schedules. It's going to cost us time and money and energy to help others and to be a good neighbor. You cannot be a good neighbor and have it not cost you. It's just not possible. 
And this story is all about how our love for God is meant to lead for us to less loving others and learning how to be a good neighbor. And so now what I want to do, I want to highlight some takeaways for us on what being a good neighbor actually looks like. And as we, as we get going, we must understand that at the start of this is that love for others is fueled by love for God. Love for others is fueled by love for God. Verse 27, when the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor at yourself. He answered correctly. That's right. As we learn to love God more and more, by his grace and through his spirit, he will change and soften our hearts so that we'll learn to love people more and more. And the reality is some people are easy to love and others are just difficult. They're more difficult. Okay? But if you really want to grow in your love for others, you've got to spend time actually with God and, and, and dwell on, on his love for us. He is the author of love and he shows us such crazy love to us all the time. Romans 5, 8, that in this, he demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we're so loved by God, then we understand that love. We then are motivated to live and walk in love and show that to others. 1 John 4 verse 20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. She's saying, don't say, don't say that you love God if you don't love people. She says, don't do it. Because we actually show our love for God by how we love people. See, genuine faith in God will produce genuine love for God. And genuine love for God will produce genuine love for people who are made in the image of God. And while you can't see it right now, we, we have four banners on the side of our wall that kind of mark out our, our pathway of discipleship, this journey of, of life change. And we have love, grow, serve, multiply. The first word is, is love. We, we deeply desire and, and point people to increase in their love for God and their love for others. It, 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 this matters. It is crucial. Love is foundational. And love is not optional for believers in Jesus. Secondly, love breaks down barriers. Verse 33 says it's a Samaritan that stops. Okay, a Samaritan would never have been expected to stop and help a Jew. He was moved with compassion, which overruled the cultural and historical barriers that existed at that time. And humans, like we are the ones, people are the ones that, that build walls and, and, and create barriers, whether, whether that's physical distance, whether that's um, socioeconomic status, whether that's different cultures, ethnicities, beliefs, political alignments, whatever it is. We are the ones that build these barriers. We're the ones that create walls. And, and love pushes through those or actually breaks them down. I mean, you think about the gospel itself and what God has done. Like, we're the ones who rebelled. We're the ones that sinned. We're the ones that failed. And we created this huge barrier, this massive divide between us and God. And yet, in love, God chose to send his only son, Jesus, to come down to earth to live and to die on the cross and to rise again, to pay for sin, to make it possible for you and for me to be forgiven and to be in a relationship with God. He did that for you. He did that for me. Love breaks down barriers. And yes, Jesus 
was born a Jewish man in Israel, but he's not simply the Jewish Messiah only. He is the Savior, the Messiah of the entire world. Isaiah 49 verse 6, this prophecy about Jesus and what he would do, it says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus died for Jews and Samaritans, for Asians and Europeans, for Africans and Australians and everybody in between. He broke down barriers. So let's be sure that we're not building them back up. This means that as believers of Jesus who are striving to be good neighbors, that we're called to love people who don't look like you. Called to love people who don't look like you. Now this isn't necessarily going to be a whole sermon about racism and our response to racism. But as this parable clearly shows and as history clearly shows, racism exists and racism is not a new issue. And in case you're wondering, there's no place for racism in true Christianity. There just isn't. We must know and remember and understand that all people were created equal by God. Therefore, all people have value and worth and they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. All people. Galatians 3, 26 to 28 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus, put on Christ. A.K.A. everybody who has put their faith in Jesus, become one, part of God's family. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus now. See, the cross levels the playing field. Every person on this planet needs Jesus the same amount. It doesn't matter the color of your skin, what, what gender you are, your upbringing, your popularity, whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in between. And every person that does put their trust in Jesus ends up joining God's forever family. And if you read the Bible, which I encourage you to do, read your Bible. If you read the Bible, you're going to find out that God's family is incredibly multicultural. Revelation 7 verse 9. In 10, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All tribes, nations, worshiping Jesus together. Listen, anybody that says that the Bible supports racism doesn't understand the Bible and doesn't grasp the gospel. Racism is anti-gospel. It just is. And I'm so thankful to be part of a church that has so many ethnicities represented. We, we, we've got uh, Romanian, Italian, French, Vietnamese, Malaysian, Chinese, South African, Indian, Iranian, Lebanese, Polish, and more. Like it's this beautiful tapestry of God's grace that people from all over the world have now heard about Jesus and now we're one. We're part of one family. And every single Sunday morning, and if you can come in person live, I, I, I urge you to, 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 to do that because every single Sunday morning together is like the small preview of what eternity is going to be like. We're called to love people who don't look like us, who don't look like you. 
But we're also called to love people who do look like you. To love people who do look like you. Yes, your own ethnic background, absolutely. But particularly, I want us to kind of zoom in a little bit and talk about your own like, physical family members, especially if you claim to follow Jesus and they claim to follow Jesus, regardless of where you are in that family, son, daughter, mother, father, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, whatever. Love is meant to be the thing that binds us together as family. Colossians 3, 14 says, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love doesn't run away from trouble. Love doesn't turn away when things get messy. And let's be honest, family, family can get pretty messy. Love puts the other first. It sacrifices selfishness for the good of the family, for the good of others. We're called to love our family, our physical, our nuclear family. And being a good neighbor also means that we need to love people who disagree with you. Love people that disagree with you. Uh, If you don't know people who disagree with you about something, then straight up you just don't know enough people and you need to meet some more people. And, And I'm not talking about small disagreements like, you know, is it Chevy or Ford or which place makes the best pizza in Windsor or, you know, Tim Hortons or Starbucks. Clearly the answer is McDonald's. We already understand that. Not talking about these small things. I'm talking about weighty issues. And if you turn those small ones into weighty issues, there's, there's another issue there. But I'm talking about these significant issues. You know, right now, okay, well, are you going to send your kids to school or are you going to keep them home? Are they going to do online? What are you going to do? Uh, or political views, lifestyle choices, religious beliefs. We've got to learn how to love and extend grace and mercy to people that we disagree with and who disagree with us. Colossians 4 verse 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This idea that we need God's help to to choose wisdom and to be kind and careful with how we interact with people and speak to them and converse with them who disagree with us and we disagree with them. Now, loving people that disagree with you does not mean that you automatically accept, condone, or endorse what their belief is or what their choices are, what they're doing, and, and all that kind of stuff. You don't have to. We've got to learn this or relearn this in Canada. You don't have to uh, endorse what somebody else thinks in order to be kind and respectful and to show love to them. I can love you and, and believe something completely different. And you can love me and believe something completely different. Okay, but what it means, though, is that we understand that regardless of, of who someone is, and what they believe, what they have done, that they are created in the image of God. And they have inherent value and worth. They deserve to be treated with dignity and respect, especially from people who claim to know, love, and represent Jesus here on earth. You can be... And you. Yeah, you can be friends with non-Christians and love them. In fact, we're called to be friends with non-Christians and love them. That's kind of the point. We should be people who who are the most patient, who are the most kind, the most compassionate, the most willing to listen so that other people feel that they can be vulnerable, that they can be honest, that they can open up, that they can feel safe around. We should be those people as the church all while still holding to our convictions of the Bible. You can do it. We can do it. By God's grace, we need to do it. We can't just hang around with people who think just like us about everything and agree with us about everything. 
And now perhaps the most difficult one, well, at least for me, is that we need to love people that we don't even know. We need to love people that we don't even know. The Samaritan in this story, he didn't know the guy had been robbed and left for dead at all. But he didn't have to. He saw a man in need and he, just, he acted in love. And, and I find this one difficult because personally, it's easier for me uh, to love someone when I know at least something about them. Like when, when I don't know something uh, about somebody and I don't know them at all, it's easier for me to, to dehumanize them. To, uh, I, I can just distance myself. Be like, well, you know, I don't really know them. I can put up this guise of, of, of personal safety. I don't want to get involved at all. Any other number of reasons. I can choose to ignore that that is a person with a story. Now, I don't know that story, but that story matters. It matters to them and it matters to God. They are a person that God has made and therefore God loves them just as much, not more, not less, but just as much as he loves me. Because here's the reality. Every single time you look at someone, whether you know them or not, you are looking at somebody that has been intricately and wonderfully and specifically designed by God and someone that Jesus Christ went to the cross for. And you are not better than them. And you're not worse than them either. We need to learn how to love people that we don't even know. And the Good Samaritan challenges us, and it sets this, this, this standard, this high bar for loving others. And, and it's difficult, but see, by, by God's grace, we can strive towards it, and we can actually pursue this and get better and better. Yeah, we're, we're going to fail. We're not going to love people perfectly. We're not going to love God perfectly. But when we, when we fail, not if, when we fail, that's when we look to Jesus Because Jesus, you could say, is kind of like our ultimate good Samaritan. He's our hero. He's our savior. We could never perfectly love and obey God. Jesus did perfectly. He lived perfectly. Perfectly obeyed all of God's commands for us. We have fallen so far short. We have failed so many times. Jesus suffered. He died. He paid the full penalty for our sins and failures in our place. And you could say that we, you, we were left for dead on the road in, in our sinful and helpless state. But Jesus being full of compassion, he comes, he rescues us, he heals us, he lifts us up, and he pays for all of our needs by his grace. And now that we have received so much love and grace and mercy, and we have been changed by the gospel, our call is to live out that love and grace in this broken and hurting world each and every day to cross borders, maybe even physically, to let the gospel destroy racism and prejudice, to choose to risk and to sacrifice, to be fueled by compassion, to truly love God by truly loving our neighbors. Let's pray together. Father God, this morning we want to pause and we want to say thank you so much for your love towards us. We, we love you in response because you loved us first. You took the initiative. You chose to act in love, to rescue us, to save us so that we could be forgiven, to send your son so that we could be part of your family. So we thank you, we praise you for that. And now, as a response, fueled by that, that love that we have for you and the love that you have for us, I pray that you would work in us, that you would change our hearts, fill us, Lord, with your spirit, so that we would be then filled also with compassion and mercy to other people. 
whether they're in our house right now, or they're down the street, or someone we've never met, or someone we've been taught to not like or even hate, Lord, just move in us so that we would be people that are truly defined by love. Jesus, you said that, that the world would know, the world would know that we would be your people by, by our love for one another. And so we definitely need to be loving those within our church, but we also need to be extending that love to other people, whether they disagree with us or not. So please, Lord, use us. Use us to be vessels of love and mercy and compassion to this broken and hurting world today and every day so that you would be honored as you would be glorified. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.